if Romans was the most important book ever written, well then Christ is the most important person who ever lived. And in fact, he lives today. He is alive. And the example of Jesus Christ that is laid out for us in the Gospel of Mark and in all of the Gospels, we are exhorted throughout the New Testament to follow his example in his holiness, in his love for God, in his service to people, in his humility. As we see in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all, I like that, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory into another. And so God, as he looks out upon us, he sees us in, in various states of transformation. Some brand new, just beginning to be transformed and having that new seed that is ready to grow into a Christ-like life. Others who have been serving and are strong in the Word, strong in the Lord, who have a high degree of glory in Christ Jesus. And our goal here this morning, as it is every week, is for each one of us to become a little more glorious, a little bit more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we gaze into the portrait of Jesus Christ that is given to us according to Mark and the preaching of the Apostle Peter here. And it begins with the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. That's where we are with the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Follow along in your Bibles as I read it out loud for us. Mark is going to jump right in to the story of Jesus Christ with no genealogy, no birth account, and he's going to present to us the portrait of an amazing person who comes onto the scene and befuddles everyone with his wonderful words and actions. Follow along as I read it for us. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We'll stop there, but we're going to continue on from this. This is just our opening verses here in verses 2 through 8. We're going to cover the first 15 verses of Mark's gospel this morning. But it starts with John the baptizer, and it starts with prophecy being fulfilled. Notice that Mark introduces the gospel here by talking about the forerunner as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Now, Several interesting things here about this quotation from Isaiah in that the first half of the quote, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, is not actually from Isaiah. But what Mark does here is he takes several passages of the Old Testament and, and puts them together because the Bible is God's word. 
And it doesn't matter if certain verses are separated over different centuries and were written by different authors. Mark recognized that the one author of Scripture was the Holy Spirit. And that the Holy Spirit had put so many things in Scripture, building one block upon another block, as we talked about in our adult Sunday school, how revelation is built upon a foundation and then the revealing of God's Word just builds on what has come before, so that Mark is able to take different parts of the Old Testament, put them together, and say that this is what Isaiah was writing about. Now the first part of the quote there, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, you see here, it's actually from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And it says, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament prophets, according to our arrangement of the Old Testament canon, had a prediction right there, towards the end, chapter 3, and then also moving into chapter 4, it's a short book, about the coming of Jesus Christ. And there was a lot of messianic expectation that was being set as we entered in from the Old Testament period into the, the silent period, where there were no prophets, there were no scriptures being written from the time of Malachi until you get to the time of John the Baptist. And so Malachi had predicted the coming of this messenger who was going to prepare the way before me. Now, who is the me that Malachi is talking about? If you go back to Malachi, you find out that it is God, the Lord, Yahweh, who is speaking here. And so God is predicting his own coming and that he says there's going to be a messenger who comes to prepare my way. And that the Lord, that's obviously a reference to God in Malachi's context, whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So what would the Jews who heard the prophecies of Malachi and read the things that he wrote down, how would they have interpreted this? What would they have thought? That God is coming. And this idea that God was coming was something that was being built upon in all of the Old Testament prophets. There was a lot of expectation about the coming of the Lord. We had our scripture reading in Isaiah chapter 64. And right there in verse 1, what is the, the heart cry of the people of Israel? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And so the coming of the Lord, the coming of God, was this key concept that God had revealed. And notice then that Mark recognizes that the coming of Messiah and the coming of God himself were actually talking about the same event. They were actually talking about the same person, that when Malachi was predicting that someone was going to prepare the way before the Lord, that this Lord is also the Messiah, the son of David. And so there's this confluence, this coming together of the messianic thought as well as the revelation of God himself. And that's what Mark is getting at when he puts this together with Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. The messenger that Malachi talked about is John the Baptist, who is going to prepare the way. And it's the same thing that Isaiah was talking about. And so he combines these, and he says that it's written in Isaiah the prophet because this was a common Jewish practice that the Jews would take several different scriptures from the prophets and combine them, and then they would only reference the major prophet. Isaiah being a major prophet, Malachi being one of the twelve, the minor prophets, they would just for reference sake give honor to the major prophet and say that the quote was from him, even though it wasn't all from 
Now that's interesting because this happens a number of places in the New Testament. Another place is in Matthew chapter 27, where Matthew takes a quote from Jeremiah and from Zechariah and combines a whole chapter of Jeremiah together with the words of Zechariah to create a prophetic fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So you see this conflation of prophecies was not unusual. Now, those who are hostile to the word of God would seize upon this as an opportunity to say, aha, there's a mistake in the Bible, that here it says he's quoting from Isaiah, but he's actually quoting from Malachi and Isaiah. There was a third century philosopher in the Neoplatonic school named Porphyry, and some record in history that he used to be a Christian, and, and he left Christianity and became a Platonist, and that he wrote several books against Christianity in his time. And one of the arguments he made against Christianity was actually this verse. The Bible's not inerrant. The Bible has errors because Mark said that he was quoting Isaiah when he was really quoting Malachi. And this is just a, an example of not understanding the scriptures in their own context, but judging it according to our standards. And when we use our standards to judge the Bible, well then we are being rebellious against God because we're setting ourselves up as the standard. But when we go to the Bible and find out, well, what are God's standards and does he act according to his character, we find out that God is consistent according to his character and that there's nothing wrong with putting parts of scripture together and then just attributing it to the major prophet. Now, there's also echoes of Exodus chapter 23, verse 20, here in Mark's conflation of Isaiah and Malachi. Because there in Exodus 23:20, 20, you have these words. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. So here we have the angel going ahead, the messenger, and we also have the preparation going on. And Mark uses some of the language of Exodus 23 together with some of the language of Malachi. And, and then he brings in almost an exact quotation of Isaiah 40, verse 3, there in Mark chapter 1, verse 3. Now, what's really interesting about his borrowing from Exodus chapter 23, verse 20, is that the angel who is being sent before you, in this case, the you is Israel that Israel is preparing to go into the Holy Land. They've exited, Exodus, from Egypt. Now they're in the wilderness, and God is going to send his angel before the people of Israel to prepare their way as they go into the Promised Land, which is so fascinating because the angel of the Lord that is being referenced here, according to my interpretation, is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. So at one point in history, the pre-incarnate Christ was sent to prepare the way for the people of Israel as they went into the promised land. And then when you come to the end of the prophecies of the Old Testament, you have another messenger who's coming to prepare the way for the angel of the Lord, the presence of God, the word of God in flesh, who's going to come and who is then going to lead his people into the promised land. So there's a lot of interesting things going on with Mark's interpretive use of these Old Testament passages. Now, one thing I want you to notice about Mark's use of these passages is here is when he says he's going to prepare the way before me, well, this again, this is the Lord. And the Lord coming to his temple, that's Jesus coming to his temple as we read in the Gospels. And so this has amazing fulfillment in the Gospels themselves and also shows us very clearly the deity of Jesus Christ. So let me show you also Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. So in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, you have the famous prophecy that is quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All the gospel writers reference Isaiah 40, verse 3 as a prediction of the coming of John the Baptist. You probably know it well. 
a voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, you notice here that in the wilderness goes with the preparing the way of the Lord. Now, when the Greek translated this, they brought a voice cries in the wilderness. And so very often you'll see there's some ambiguity. Does in the wilderness go with the voice crying or does it go with preparing the way of the Lord? But really it's it's both because John is preparing in the wilderness the way for the Lord. And so the voice is crying in the wilderness as he's preparing the way in the wilderness. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, as it's there in our text, prepare the way of the Lord Make his paths straight. Now the wilderness. Let's talk a little bit about the wilderness. It was in our scripture reading, and it's here, and it's one of the two key ideas in these opening 15 verses of the gospel according to Mark. The two key words are the wilderness and the spirit. The wilderness is a place of new beginnings, a place away from the wickedness of human civilization, It's a place of repentance, and thus it is also a place of grace. We see this all the way back to the Exodus, and God brought the people out of an evil civilization and brought them into a wilderness where they would start over, start anew as a nation, with a new law, with a new heart, so to speak. And so God will use this imagery, this picture of the wilderness going back to the Exodus as the premier example and the prototype of later types, as he does in the prophet Hosea. Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 are interesting here as you look at the wilderness theme in Mark's opening chapter. He says, Therefore, behold, speaking of lost Israel, speaking of rebellious, sinful Israel, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. That God is wooing his unfaithful wife, like Hosea was going after an unfaithful woman, and and bringing her out into the place of humility, the place of repentance, the place of a new beginning. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So there's a reason why John is in the wilderness. And there's a reason why Jesus is in the wilderness, that this is powerful imagery with an important theological lesson for the people of Israel. It's time for repentance. It's time for grace. It's time for a new beginning. And so all Judea, all Jerusalem were going out to be baptized. Now, the Gospel of Mark then records for us the appearance of John the Baptist. It tells us there, He was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, this is not only interesting just because it's interesting, but it's interesting because of what Malachi had also written. Now, Mark doesn't point all this out. He's not explicit about why is he telling us about John the Baptist's appearance. But instead, for those who have insight, for those who study the scriptures and say, well, is this here for some other reason than just to tell us that John was living off the land as kind of an ascetic and kind of a, a wild man? No, there is more purpose here than just recognizing John's eccentricities. Instead, what is happening is that God is showing us that the promise of Elijah is in fact coming to pass. John's clothing is highlighted because God had promised that he was going to send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. 
So as the messianic prophecy in chapter 3 was referenced, now here the messianic prophecy in Malachi chapter 4, because the Messiah's coming and, and the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord are linked together in prophetic scripture. Elijah's coming was expected by all of the Jewish people. And so when they came out and they saw John preaching and they saw that the prophetic ministry was resumed and that he was clothed in a certain way, it would have brought to the Jewish mind 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. You always want to read the scripture in its own context and try to think like a first century Jewish person would have thought. And so when the Jews saw John wearing a camel's hair tunic and a leather belt around his waist... Well, you know, that's exactly the way that they thought of Elijah. When the king was wondering which prophet it was that had come and spoken a message, he'd asked, what did he look like? And they told the king in 2 Kings 1.8, well, this prophet wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And the king knew immediately, well, that's Elijah, the Tishbite. And so you see there's some subtlety, there's some imagery going on here. And the Gospel of Mark, for as much as it's written to a Roman audience, for as little as Mark actually references the scriptures himself, Jesus quotes the scriptures a lot, but for as much as the narrator, Mark, as little as he references the Old Testament scriptures, don't think that he's trying to separate the Gospel of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament like some preachers have tried to do in recent times as well as in history. There's no separating of the Gospel of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. And anyone who reads the Gospel and reads the Old Testament, you figure it out pretty quickly that these are connected. There's a fulfillment pattern that is happening here. Now, Josephus is a Jewish historian writing in the end of the first century, beginning of the second century, and he survived the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, became a captive of the Romans, and, and then was able to write about those events as well as other events. So he was a, a very valuable historian, and he writes concerning John the Baptist. And this is what he wrote in his book, Antiquities. He said, John exhorted the Jews to lead righteous lives, to practice justice towards their fellows and piety towards God, and so doing, to join in baptism. So he focuses on the repentance, the living out of the practical righteousness towards man and towards God, and that baptism was to follow this repentance and be a sign and seal of this genuine piety and true biblical justice. And so that's what we have as a, a fuller account in the other Gospels. But Mark, he doesn't spend much time talking about the preaching of repentance. He just mentions the word repentance there in verse 4. But then what he really focuses on in the preaching of Jesus Christ comes in verse 7. Now, before we get to verse 7, let me just say that repentance, as John preached it, you notice that it also is the mark of Jesus preaching in chapter 1, verse 15. So Jesus' preaching is summarized by Mark as this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So as you go through the rest of the gospel of Mark and everything that Jesus says, everything he teaches, it's all part of that message. That is the big picture that informs all the details. And all the details inform what he means by repent and believe in the gospel and the kingdom of God being at hand. And so the general statement 
is informed by the details, and the details are also controlled and clarified by the general statement. Why do I make a point of that? Why is that important? Well, it's because a lot of people, a lot of bad teachers, whether they're intentionally bad or whether they're just along a stream that is going in a bad direction, you know, God knows the heart and he knows every individual, but there's a lot of bad teaching going on where people will just take general statements of the Bible and then fill them in with details from our culture. They'll say, well, Jesus said you're supposed to love your neighbor. And so what does our culture say? What does it mean to love your neighbor? And they'll, they'll take the details of our culture and the general statement of Scripture and they think, voila, we have it. No, you do not have it. You take the details of Scripture and the general statements of Scripture and they inform one another. They control one another so that you don't get off track and start teaching the doctrines of man instead of teaching true doctrines from God. So, we must be very careful that we stick close to the Scriptures. Now, repentance is a key in the preaching of John the Baptist. It's a key in the preaching of Jesus. And it's key in the preaching of the Apostles. You can look up the word repent, follow it through the Gospels, follow it through the book of Acts. You'll find out that this is the message. And so, if a, a, a preacher does not preach repentance, he's not a Christian preacher. He might talk about a Christ, he might preach a version of Christianity, but without repentance, you're missing the main heart of Jesus' message. This is what he came to preach. And what is repentance? You know, David Moraz was at our Lord's Night, one of the elders in our church, and he brought an article about how so many churches seem to get the gospel wrong. If there's anything we should get right, it should be the gospel. And the article was pointing out one thing, and then David said, well, it's still not good enough, because he didn't talk about repentance. You've got to have that as a part of your gospel or you've cut out the very heart of the gospel message according to Mark chapter 1, verse 15 and so many other scriptures. So what are we doing? We're calling people to repent. We're calling them to leave after their own worldly, godless, sinful mindset and lifestyle and to be conformed to Jesus Christ. And we're preaching forgiveness of sins but forgiveness of sins is always connected to repentance. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness of sins. And people say, well, that's, that's adding works to the gospel. Well, if that's adding works to the gospel, then Jesus added works to the gospel. And I'm going to preach the gospel that Jesus preached, whether you think it's works or whether you don't think it's works. Because what's important is what did Jesus preach, not what we preach. And repentance is key. Without repentance, there is no salvation. There is no forgiveness Repentance isn't just feeling bad about your sins, but it's a change of directions. Many people, they have a worldly sorrow. They feel bad that, you know, I, I feel guilty about it. I did something. It hurt people. It had bad consequences. Ugh. That's not repentance. Everybody feels that. That's just worldly regret. That's the kind of thing that people who commit suicide feel. That's not a way to salvation. Instead, repentance is when you change your direction. You say, this is what I was, and now I'm going to be going somewhere else. If you were going to put it into non-spiritual terms, you could take it into another realm just for illustration as a parable. If Obama, during his presidency, had said, I know that I campaigned on all of these issues, and I know that I said I was going to bring universal health care and all of that, but, but I've had an awakening. I've come to understand that all of that is foolish, all of that is wrong, and I'm going in a totally different direction with my presidency. That's repentance. Okay? That's when you're, you're going one way, and you say, oop, 
That's a bad way. I don't want to go that way. I'm going to go a different way. And that's the way it is for the Spirit when someone is saved. They see that I was going away from God, I was a hater of God, and now I'm going to course correct. That's really what repentance is all about. So John was preaching repentance. Baptism was the sign, the seal of that repentance. And Jesus, he came preaching repentance as well. Now, in verse 7 is where we get the focus of what Mark is really interested in in the ministry of John the Baptist, where he says, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so, as much as John preached righteousness and repentance and as important as all of that was, that's not Mark's interest. Because Jesus is going to do the same thing, and we don't have to repeat it all here. The book is really about Jesus. And so, John is here to point us to Jesus. And the most important thing that John ever said was what he said about Christ, the one who was coming after him. Notice the extreme humility of John. And actually, it's not extreme humility. What it is, is it's just rational thinking. Oh, that we were all this rational. That we would recognize that it's not about me. You know, wisdom comes to us when we recognize that we are not the center of the universe. When life is not about us, but that there is a God, and He is the one who is important. It's His plan, it's His purposes, it's His way. My wife and I were talking yesterday about how it's so sad when there's a family conflict and often leads to a divorce, and, and then the husband is telling his side of the story, the wife is telling her side of the story, and they're trying to get all their family and friends to see things from their perspective and to get on their side. And then people start to line up, and they say, well, well I believe him, and they say, well, I believe her. And, and, and they get this conflict that's spreading not only from the family, but to everyone around who has to now pick a side, and the kids get caught up in it. Do I pick mom's side or dad's side? And it's just war that spreads out. When will people learn? It's not about my side. There is no my side. My side is insignificant. My side is unimportant. What matters is God's side. That's the only side that counts. It's the only side that matters. And we all take God's side and we treat everyone the way that God wants us to treat them. I'm not on your side. You're not on my side. I'm on God's side and I'm going to treat you the way that God wants me to treat you and you're going to treat me the way that God wants you to treat me. There's only one side. John recognized that. It's not about me. I don't want people on my side. I want people on Christ's side. He says, as much as people are following me, as, as much as they think that I am great, he says, I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. The greatest preacher that's in the world today, who is the most faithful, who has served the Lord for decades, who is strong, who is courageous, who is bold, who is loving, he is nothing compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. All of our honor, all of our worship, all of our praise, as much as we honor people, but we honor Christ so much more. Let's be like that. Let's be like John the Baptist. Not building a following for ourselves, but building a following for Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. Now, we get to the baptism of Jesus Christ here in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Read those verses with me. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Galilee of the Gentiles. 
is where Jesus Christ was from. He wasn't from Jerusalem. He wasn't from Judah. He came as an outsider. And as I've been reading and studying about the Gospel of Mark, scholars have increasingly been understanding this tension between the Galileans and those who were in Judah and Jerusalem. There was a lot of pride around the people of Jerusalem, and and they would look down on those semi-heathens from Galilee. They were just kind of out there, and they weren't close to God like those who were in Jerusalem. And Mark is going to focus his gospel on Jesus' ministry in Galilee. As Jesus makes his journey then to Jerusalem, he finds his greatest opposition and the deepest sin there at the very heart of God's people in the temple of Jerusalem. But Jesus comes from Galilee, and he is baptized by John in the River Jordan. And Mark makes no attempt to explain all the questions that arise to us as to why did Jesus get baptized when John is baptizing for repentance and Jesus has nothing to baptize for. That's not Mark's point. And so we're not preaching Matthew and Luke. If you want to study that, there's a lot of great sermons out there on that. But instead, what we're going to focus on in Mark is what God did at the baptism of Jesus. Immediately, after coming up out of the water, Jesus saw the heavens being torn open. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And here God rends the heavens. He tears them open. This, this language is taken exactly from Isaiah chapter 64. This is the beginning of God tearing open the heavens and coming down to begin the eschatological work of the Son of Man, the Messiah of Israel. Now, this is Mark's first use of the word immediately there in verse 10. Immediately, he saw the heavens open. He uses this word about 40 times like I talked about. It gives that urgency. It talks about something new, something unexpected. This quick series of actions in rapid succession makes us realize that that something Powerful and amazing is coming upon the scenes. This reminds me of the predictions about Jesus' second coming. I'm coming quickly. I'm coming quickly, is what he always says. That it seems to delay and delay and delay, but then when it happens, boom, one thing after another, immediately in succession. That's the way it was with his first coming. Malachi written 400 years before Christ came, and then immediately, 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 immediately. It just goes quickly once it starts. And that's the way it's going to be in the end. Now, everything happens suddenly, everything is astonishing, there's miracle after miracle. Only Mark records that Jesus was too busy to eat, as he does in chapter 3, verse 20, and chapter 6, verse 31. Now, one of the questions I have when we look at the baptism of Jesus here, according to Mark, is did everyone hear the voice that came out of heaven? Did everyone that was there see the the heavens being torn open? Or was this a private revelation to Jesus and perhaps also to John the Baptist? Well, from the Gospel according to John, we know that John the Baptist also saw the Spirit descending upon Jesus as a dove and that this was the signal to John the Baptist as to who was this one who was coming after him who was mightier than John the Baptist. So we know it was at least those two. Now, Mark says, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, whereas Matthew and Luke say, this is my beloved son. And so there's a slight difference in wording. Is he addressing just Jesus or is he pointing this out to multiple people saying, this is my beloved son. Now Mark says Jesus saw, but that doesn't mean that he's the only one who saw. 
So we have to be careful when we're reading Scripture that we don't read into it more than what it actually says. Some people read Jesus saw and they interpret it as only Jesus saw, but the word only is not there. So you have to be careful about adding words to Scripture. I don't know how many people saw this, and I don't know how many people heard it, but I know that it's real. I know it wasn't an illusion. I know it wasn't some hallucination. I know that the heavens were torn open and that this voice came from heaven. How many people heard it? How many people saw it? I don't know, but I know Jesus and I know John, and I would suspect others as well. Now, what exactly does all of this mean? Why is God rending the heavens and sending down the Holy Spirit coming down upon Jesus? Well, God is giving Jesus everything that he needs for his ministry that he is about to begin. We talked about Isaiah 64, verse 1. I also want to look at John chapter 3, verse 34 here. I love this verse. He whom God has sent, Jesus here referring to himself as the one whom God has sent, utters the words of God. For he, that is God the Father, gives the Spirit without measure. And so God has given Jesus Christ the Spirit without measure. The Bible says all of us are given a measure of grace. And we're all given a spiritual gift, a spiritual ministry, according to God's will and God's plan. Well, if you took all of the spiritual gifts, all of the grace that God has given to the perhaps millions of believers who are in the world today, and you combined all of that grace and all of that power into one person, it would look a lot like the Lord Jesus Christ. He had the Spirit without measure. He wasn't given just a gift of teaching. He wasn't just given a gift of service. He wasn't just given a gift of leadership or a gift of wisdom or or any of those types of things. He was given every spiritual power by God, and we're going to see that on display throughout the rest of the gospel. Here God is equipping his son with everything that he needs. But not only is the spirit what he's going to need, but also the favor of God. Here, Psalm 2, verse 7, is really what's in the background of what God speaks here when the voice comes from heaven. You are my beloved son. This goes back to Messianic Psalm. And he said, you are my son, today I have begotten you whether it was David or one of David's descendants, this Messianic psalm points out the sonship of the Messianic king, the son of David. And when God told Jesus, you are my son, when God said, this is my beloved son, he's identifying him not only as the Messiah, but as we see from the introductory verses, as God come in the flesh, the Lord who is coming to his temple. You are my son, with you I am well pleased. Now this beginning of Jesus' ministry is highlighted and noted also by Peter. As a, It's so interesting to compare Peter's preaching in the book of Acts with Peter's preaching as recorded by Mark in the gospel according to Mark. And so this is what Peter said, as Luke records it, concerning the beginning of the ministry of Jesus there in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. He says, so... One of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. After Judas had fallen away and committed suicide, they wanted to restore the number to 12, and so they needed someone who had been with Jesus from the beginning. And what was the beginning? The beginning was the baptism of Jesus, then all that comes after that until he was taken up. 
All right, so let's keep moving along. This is a powerful passage, but we're actually going to move ahead to Jesus in the wilderness in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Look at those verses with me. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, one thing after another. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, the time in the wilderness here, again, one of the key words in our opening section is the wilderness, a place of repentance, a place of new beginnings, a place away from the corruption of human society, but also a place of danger where you have temptation, where you need God's help, as illustrated in Israel's history. Exodus chapter 4 identifies Israel as God's firstborn son. Now, what happened after God identified Israel as his son? Well, he took them out into the wilderness, right? And so God tells Jesus, you are my son, and what's the first thing the Spirit of God does with him? Time to go out to the wilderness. How long was Israel in the wilderness? Forty years. Now, 40 years would have been a little bit too long for Jesus to be in the wilderness because he had a lot to do. And so instead of 40 years, what we have is the 40 days. I want you to compare. It'd be great to to go there and look at it, but just for time's sake, let's look at what's here. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, what Moses said about Israel's time in the wilderness, he told them, the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. You are my son, time to be humbled, time to be tested. I want to see what's in your heart, Jesus. He was there with Satan. He was there with the wild beasts. How would he respond? Would he respond the way that the people of Israel responded in the wilderness? Or would he be different? Well, you can read more about it in the other Gospels, but as Mark certainly implies, he is victorious in his temptation, in his time of trial in the wilderness God wanted to see whether Israel would keep his commandments or not. And there in the wilderness, Jesus was tested to see whether or not he would keep the commandments of God. He humbled him and allowed him to experience that hunger for 40 days so that Jesus might be able to say to the tempter, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The lesson that Israel should have learned and failed is the lesson that Jesus Christ did successfully master and use against the enemy. Well, that's his time in the wilderness. And that reminds me of what John wrote in his letter, 1 John chapter 3. He says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The devil had success against Adam in the garden in paradise. But he failed against the second Adam in the wilderness. Adam had a paradise in which to be tested. Jesus had a wilderness, a desert in which to be tested. He was humbled and he was pushed and he was different. This is why the temptation of Jesus Christ is there before his public ministry. And it's been wisely noted. Private victory always precedes public success. Private victory always precedes public success in God's eyes. A man might be a success in human eyes and have no private victory over sin and Satan, but a man never has success in God's eyes unless he has first defeated Satan in private. Jesus came and he preached. This is our final verses for this morning. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
So Jesus was a preacher. And people today, they say, well, I don't want preaching. I don't want people to be preaching at me. I I like dialogue. I don't like authoritative teaching. I, I just want to have a conversation where all ideas are welcome and everyone is affirmed. Well, that's not Jesus, and that's not John the Baptist. They came preaching. And if you don't want to hear preaching, then you don't want to hear Jesus. Because Jesus was a preacher. And those who follow in the footsteps, the example of Jesus, are also going to be preachers. They're not having friendly dialogues. They are proclaiming the truth that they have heard from God as faithfully as they can so that you can know the will of God, you can know the word of God, and you can know what is true. We're not here finding a mediating position between all ideas. We're here finding what is true. If you're not interested in the truth, there are plenty of people who will minister to your needs. But if you want the truth, then I hope that you've come to the right place. And that the gospel according to Mark is what is feeding your soul. Now, as Jesus proclaimed repentance, we've already talked about that as a summary of his message, we want to recognize that many in Jesus' audience did not think that they had need to repent. They were already righteous. They would already be guaranteed entrance into the kingdom of God because of their connection to Abraham, their faithfulness to the law of Moses, But Jesus shows us that they were deceived. Jesus taught throughout his Gospels that those who thought that they were righteous were gravely mistaken and that he came to seek and to save the lost and that the kingdom of God could only be entered by faith in the Gospel of God. Believe in the Gospel. Now, As I've handed out to you, there's a well-known device that has been used by many faithful Christians. I did not come up with this. That is a great tool that you can use to apply Scripture. And especially when you come to parts of Scripture like the narrative portions of the Gospels. But as far as application, it can be a little bit more tricky in the narrative sections of Scripture. And so a useful tool is to use the SPEC method. And sometimes this just has the S, P, E, and C, but sometimes it also has the K. And I like having the K on there as well. And so it stands for this. Is there a sin to confess? Is there a promise that you're supposed to believe? Is there an example for you to follow? Is there a command that you must obey? And what knowledge of God are you going to take away from this message, from this word that Mark has given to us? People were coming and confessing their sins. Have you confessed your sins? Is there a sin that you are not willing to confess to God, to a friend, to a loved one? What sin is there that is in your heart, that is in your life, that is unconfessed and needs to be confessed? Is there anything in this passage that God has spoken to you and said, you are wrong in your thinking. You are wrong in your actions. And if God has brought any conviction home to your heart, confess it. Confess it to him. Confess it to a faithful Christian friend. There's a lot of power in that confession of sin that promotes repentance, genuine, heartfelt repentance. Is there a promise to be believed? Well, there's many probably that you could pull out of here, but I think the most important one is the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God 
is near. That is a promise that is to be believed. Now, also we have, is there a command to be obeyed? Well, the clearest command in the scripture here is repent and believe in the gospel. There's an urgency to the command to repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, therefore. The judge is standing right at the door. Don't think, well, the kingdom of God was near, but it's not near now, and and we've got a lot of time before the kingdom of God is going to come, and there's really no urgency. You've got a long life ahead of you. You know, just think about it for a while. Don't tell people to think about it for a while. Tell people that today is the day you need to make a decision. You need to follow the Lord Jesus Christ today. And I, I, I'm preaching to myself here. I often fall into the trap of just saying, well, I'm just going to preach the truth and, and hopefully over time people will realize it and, and believe it. But Jesus Christ preached with urgency. He said, the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And we need to have that kind of urgency in obeying his command. And if you're here and you haven't obeyed the command to repent and believe in the gospel... What are you waiting for? Why are you playing Russian roulette with your life? Why are you allowing yourself to dangle over the precipice of eternal destruction? What would hold you back from repenting and believing in the gospel and receiving eternal life today? Is there any reason? There is none. And then finally, the knowledge about God. I think, as I was thinking this through, you might come up with other applications, but when I was thinking about what do we learn about God here, I think we we learn how much the Father loves Jesus Christ. This is my beloved Son. With Him I am well pleased. The value at the heart of the Gospel is not the value of man, but it's the value of Jesus Christ. The greatest love that exists in the world is not Love for mankind, but it is love for God. And God's greatest love is his love for his Son. And the Son's greatest love is his love for the Father. And if we are going to be wise, we must be the same. Anyone who loves his own life, anyone who loves his wife or his children more than Jesus Christ is not worthy of him. Just as Abraham was willing to sacrifice his beloved son, So the Heavenly Father is also willing to sacrifice His beloved Son, but oh, how He loves Him. How costly. How painful. How difficult for God the Father to sacrifice His Son. Don't get caught up in your worth and your value. Focus on the worth and value of Jesus Christ. 